with every text, we must understand the context of the text. If we don't understand the context, we can really make the text say whatever it is that we want. And the text that we're looking at today has been severely distorted throughout church history. Now, sometimes when we misunderstand a text, uh, the, uh, the effect of that can be minimal. There are other times that the effect of that misinterpretation um, results in either life with God or life apart from God for all of eternity. This is of the latter. If we misunderstand this text, it does affect our salvation. And I'm not trying to overstate that, but I believe exactly what James wants us to know here. Today we're looking at the relationship between works and faith with regards to justification. And what we're going to see is that the faith that saves us produces a life of good works. So what I want to do is I want to review all of chapter 2. And and then we're going to jump in to where we're at. Now, if you'd like to, all of our sermons um, are online. You can always go back and listen. But in verses 1 through 13, James shows that we, the church, are to love one another without partiality. We're to give our love, uh, we're to uh, give our money and our resources to meet the needs of especially one another in the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we help those outside, but especially those within the church. Just as God has given us mercy in Jesus, so we now are to give mercy to others. What God has done to us, he's now doing through us. These are all things that we've talked over the last couple weeks. James wants us to see that as Christians, we're to radically meet the needs of one another. There's to be no one without need because we meet the needs within the church, with our brothers and sisters, with our family. Last week in chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, what Ben preached, and he did an amazing job at it. I encourage you, if you missed it, go back and read it. James addresses a fallacy. He, he answers the question, can you have faith that does not produce works? Can you have faith that does not produce works? He gives an illustration. Can you turn to another Christian who has a need of food, of clothing, of shelter, and can you say, be warmed and filled and do nothing? Can you do that and have true faith? When faced with the suffering of another person, can we say, I'll I'll pray for you. And when we have the abilities to meet that need and we walk away, is that real faith? James says, no. And he says it emphatically. Look at verse 17. Faith without works is dead. Look at verse 20. Faith apart from the works is useless. Look at verse 26. Faith apart from works is dead. Do you see a point he's trying to make? Dead, useless, dead. If there is a faith that does not involve works, it's not real faith. James says that an intellectual faith that does not result in acts of love towards one another is not real faith. In fact, he equates it to what Ben said, to to demon faith. In verse 19, he's like, look, the demons know things about God. Does that make them saved? No. So just mere knowledge alone is not sufficient for salvation. So what is James' point? Well, first we could say a faith that is limited to mental assent is useless. If you just simply know things, there's no conviction. There's there's no working that out. There's no joy in that conviction. 
and is useless. And we need to hear that here in America. Especially here. Just think. Just think. Here in America, we have a ton of Bibles. In fact, there's Bibles like in every chair in front of you, and many of you have them in your hands. And you've got probably like 10 at home. And you all have a dozen of them on your phone, right? Which, that's cool. We have lots of Christian books. We have lots of churches and Bible college and seminaries. We have podcasts and blogs written by Christians that you can listen to all day long, right? You can be inundated with Christian knowledge and information. We, we're in a culture of knowledge. So James is, is pressing on us. And he's saying, look, if, if all you have is knowledge, that's not real faith. Why? Well, it brings us to the next point. Real faith in the king of glory produces a life of works. James wants us to know if our faith does not result in a life of love and mercy to others, it's not real. So this is what takes us to our text in verse 20. James says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's going to make the case. He's going to prove it. That, that works come with faith. So who is this foolish person he refers to? Well, I don't think he actually has a person in mind. I think he's, he's referring back to the situation he talked about in verses 14 to 17. Can, can you have a faith that, that doesn't meet the needs of one another? Can you have a faith that when you see a brother and sister and they have a need and you say, well, I'll pray for you, and you walk away, can that faith save you? And he says, if that's you, you foolish person, let me show you that that's useless. Did you see what he's doing here? He's addressing that person. Now, why is this text so difficult? I started off saying, man, if we misunderstand this, it's, it's life with God or life apart from God, based upon our understanding here. Well, because there's another writer in the New Testament named Paul, which probably many of you have heard about. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament, 27 altogether in the New Testament. And they both speak about justification. And at first glance, it looks as if Paul and James disagree with one another and in fact many people believe that they do disagree with one another but i hope to show that they are not in any disagreement at all so first let's just define justification uh paul or james mentions justified by works three times in our faith so he's wanting us to understand something about this word justification well to be justified before god is to be declared righteous before god so how do we obtain a right standing before God? That's what Paul's writing about. That's what James is writing about. It's all about this idea of justification. And that's what the gospel is. The Bible says that because of sin, all of humanity is sinful, meaning we're rebellious towards God, we're disobedient towards God, we do not love God, thus we're under God's wrath, and we are called unrighteous. And because of that, we all, we're all under the wrath of God that we would suffer eternal damnation. But that's the gospel, where God now sends his son Jesus Christ to come down, that he would die on a cross, so that on that cross he would bear the penalty of you and me and for all who would believe in him, so that we could be forgiven and, and that we would have his righteousness imputed to us that's one of those you know big christian words imputed that it's given to us his righteousness is now our righteousness 
So by our faith in Christ, what happens is he takes our sin, pays the penalty on the cross, gives us his righteousness, so that now when God looks at you, what does he see? The righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Declared righteous. Now you're forgiven. You go from a child of wrath to a child of God. You go from outside the kingdom to inside the kingdom of God. There's no better news than this. This is what we preach every week. This is what we want to send out with the Samaritan's Purse. This is the message of hope that the world needs. That we who are unrighteous and under the wrath of God can be made right with God. So the question then is, how do we become justified? And so now we look at what James and Paul says. So this is what... Paul says, and what James says. So we put it up here, so we can just put them right next to each other. Paul is from Romans 3.28, where he's walking through salvation and justification. And James is from verse, uh, what is that, 24, 5, 4. Um, so Paul says, we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay? James says, we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Do you see the problem? You see the problem? The head nodding is where we, where we go here. Yes, we see the problem. Um, Paul says we're saved by faith without works. James says we're saved by faith and works. Are they contradicting one another? Mm, a lot of people would say they are. Um, but I hope to show that they're not. In fact, they're in agreement with one another. They both say amen to the other person. So, one thing that we need to do is understand there are two different reference points when we speak about justification. Um, and if you notice, your outline is a little more lengthy today. I uh, wanted to make sure that you had the information in there as we walk through here. So first, we'll look at Paul. This is what Paul says on justification. Paul speaks, when he refers to justification, he's referring to God's initial judicial verdict pronounced over a sinner who confesses faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to know that when you believe in Jesus Christ, that there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. So we, when we enter into the kingdom, when we first believe, he's like, it's all faith. There is nothing you can do. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul can't be more clear. He's like, look, guys, there's no way you earn your way to God. John, in chapter 1, verse 12 of the gospel, he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So John, the apostle, says, look, the way you get right with God, the way you become a child of God, is by believing. Ephesians it's by believing. It's by this faith. We need to know this. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of Bible reading. There's no amount of Samaritan's purse boxes that we send. There's no amount of money that we send out of this church to help Serene or anyone else that earns our salvation before God. We do not earn our favor before God. We cannot earn favor before God. Paul is emphasizing the only way we're justified is by faith. If we could earn our salvation, like think about it, if we could earn it, then why did Jesus go to the cross? What did he do on the cross if you and I could earn it another way? 
It had been pointless. The only reason Jesus went was an act of grace, act of love, act of compassion, because we cannot earn it. So that's what James is, uh, that's what Paul is saying. It's the initial verdict that God gives. But now we look at James. James looks at justification from a different angle. And he's looking at justification as God's final judicial verdict verdict based upon one's life, upon the actions of one's life. So James wants us to know that faith, that the faith that saves us produces works that give evidence to our faith. Amen, indeed. This is the good news. So when Paul speaks, he speaks about works often, not always, often in a very negative way. Why? Because we're not saved by works, right? James, from this angle, is showing that works are the evidence of our faith. So the 15 times he uses works in James, he speaks about it very positively. Because he wants us to see, no, these works are good. They flow right from our faith. He is saying that our works are the evidence that provides validity to our faith. So let me just, uh, let's, let's, let's see what Jesus has to say. Because James speaks a lot like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 35, we read this. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil, portion, evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. And so he's talking about what's in your heart. Whatever's in your heart is what comes out. If you've been saved by grace and you've been given a new heart, then you're going to do things that honor God. If you've not been saved by grace and you still have a sinful heart, then what comes out is not going to bring glory to God. So then he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, that sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? That our, our works actually um, are, are there declaring something about us, and based upon our works, God's going to be looking and, and giving a verdict at the end of our life. Think about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. This is what Ben referenced last week, and it's an amazing passage. We don't have time to read it all today, but in Matthew chapter 5, 25, verses 31 to 46, I'll pass it on for homework. But Jesus returns to judge all of humanity, and he divides all of humanity up into two groups, the sheep and the goats. So which one were the sheep last week? Was it this side? It's probably this side, right? You're the sheep? You guys remember? Goats. Well, see, on the right is supposed to be sheep, and on the left is goats, but I guess it depends on perspective. So, if I was Jesus, which I'm not, okay, but we'll call you sheep, we'll call you goats. You guys say that you're Christians, and guess what? Jesus then says, based upon your actions, based upon your works, he says, You've been justified. Enter into the kingdom of God. He says, you fed the poor. You clothed the poor. You did all of these acts of love and grace and mercy, and therefore enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then he turns to the goats. And the goats are saying, hey, we like you too, Jesus. We, we, we live for you. And he goes, well, let's look at it. You didn't feed the homeless. You didn't take care of anyone. None of your works were done for the glory of God and for the true love of others. So based upon your actions, it is clear you have no faith, therefore you are separated from all of eternity. Do you see how works work? 
They're not the means what save us. They're the evidence that declares whether our faith is genuine or not. And so at that day of judgment, and our works are publicly displayed, it's not about weighing one more than the other. Well, did I do more good? That's not about that. He's simply going to go, was there evidence of faith? If there's no evidence, do not think that you are saved. That's where James is cautioning us. He wants no one to get to that day and go, I I thought I was saved. I knew a lot of information. I had all the verses memorized. He wants to see what real faith is. So Paul speaks about how we come into a right relationship with God. James speaks about what it is to live in a right relationship with God. James, Paul, speaks about declaration. James speaks about demonstration. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Hopefully, because we could spend a lot more time on here, but we're not. Suppose you go into a garden shed, and you grab seeds, and we'll just pretend all the seeds look the same. I know if Robert was here, he would break down my analogy very quickly. He's a biologist, so he knows all the difference between seeds. But if I was to go grab a bunch of seeds, I would have no idea what they do. Um, And let's say the label has been worn off. So I don't know if they're peach seeds or pear seeds or apple seeds, and we'll just pretend all the seeds look the same. How would you know what seeds you have? Well, you go plant them, and guess what? If you have apple seeds, apples are coming up. If you got pear seeds, pear seeds are coming up. What is in the root is shown in the fruit. Okay, what's in your heart comes out in your actions. And when we are saved by grace, we're given a new heart that now we would live for Christ. So our actions ought to reveal that. So James wants to show this now, that he's not just making this stuff up. This isn't some (coughs) first century teaching. So he goes, let me prove it. I'll bring two Old Testament figures to the table, and we'll see what we read about them in the Bible. We start with Abram. Abraham. So I want to recap his life real quick and then show what James says about him here. So many of you probably know who Abraham is. Um, In Genesis 12, God chooses Abram, later changes his name to Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. Um, And then we come to chapter 15, and, and we notice that there's a problem. In order for for a great nation to come out of Abraham, what does Abraham need? A child. Abraham and Sarah have no children. And so in chapter 15, he kind of comes to God and he's like, how is this supposed to be? I mean, I got this nephew way over there. Is that the guy? And God says, no, I'm going to give you a child that comes from you. And so now we have this promised child where, where this nation is going to be birthed out of. And this is what we read in Genesis 15. And he brought him out, God brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So why is Abraham counted righteous? Because he believed in him. Right here, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and is counted righteous. Why is he justified? He believed. When Paul speaks about Abraham, guess what text he uses? 
Genesis 15, 6. He does that in Romans 4. He does that in Galatians 3 because he wants us to know we are saved by faith, not works. But James has a different focus. And so James then takes us also to the end of Abraham's life where many years later, possibly 25 to 30 years after the promise, so now Abraham is an old man around 99 years old and is still without children, and then God blesses them with a child. He's about 100. Sarah is, uh, Sarah is 90. And as that child grows up, Isaac grows up, the one whom God has promised. From him, I will bring a great nation. And it's from him, ultimately, Christ comes in the New Testament. God then says in Genesis 22, I need you to go sacrifice your son. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, like why that happened. But, but what we read is that Abraham's going to go do this. In Genesis twenty-two twelve, he takes Isaac, who's a young man, and he lays him on the altar, and he prepares to sacrifice him. He raises the knife, and in Genesis twenty-two twelve, we read, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So let's look at back at James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? Well, wait a minute. We all just said, and Paul makes the point in Galatians and in Romans, that Abraham is justified in chapter 15, right? It's in chapter 15 of Genesis that he believes in God. He's counted righteous. And what is it that James means here? Well, again, it depends. Are we talking about the initial justifying verdict or the final verdict that comes at the end of our lives? You see what they're doing? You see James' point? He looks at the end of James' life. In fact, he starts with the end of Abraham's life in verse 21. Rather than starting in verse 23, you remember Abraham, he believed in God, he was counted righteous. Then many years later, he had to offer his son. No, he starts at the end of his life. He says, hey, remember Abraham when he had to, or when he was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac? You see, by willing to sacrifice his son, That was the evidence of his faith. It was his works showing the validity of his faith. And this is what it means in verse 22 when it says that faith was completed by his works. The word completed means to mature, bring to an end, reach its goal. So our faith that we believe in God is meant to be displayed in a life of obedience. That's, what, that's, that's the goal of our faith. As we live out our faith in Jesus, it's going to be evidenced by our works. That's what, that's what it means in verse 23 when he says, Scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now sometimes when, we, when, we use, when the Bible uses the word fulfill, it can refer to the completing of what was predicted. So if something was predicted and it later comes true, we see that it was fulfilled. So that's one way of looking at fulfill. But it can also mean bring to ultimate significance. So what James is emphasizing is the faith 
that Abraham is said to have had in Genesis 15 finds its significance in a life of obedience, ultimately willing to sacrifice his son in order to demonstrate the obedience of his faith. It's because he obeyed God that we know Abraham was justified. Now, there's probably a lot of people that James is talking to in this church. It's a Jewish church, primarily, who are going, yeah, but that's Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham... He's like the guy in the Old Testament. I mean, none of us compares to Abraham. He's better than all of us. I mean, he is like the elite figure of the Old Testament. So are we really supposed to be like Abraham? So many of them might kind of write off James on this and go, that's, I mean, that's a great example, but we can't relate to that. So James very wisely says, let me bring someone else to the stand. Let's bring up another Old Testament figure. And so he brings up Rahab. You can read about Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab is the complete opposite of Abraham. Abraham's at the top of the social order where, Abraham, or where Rahab is at the bottom. She is a Gentile prostitute. She lives in the great walls of Jericho. You know, remember the first city that when Israel comes across the Jordan, that's what they're faced with is the great walls of Jericho. But Rahab has heard stories about the God of Israel. And this is what she says when spies come into Jericho. This is what she tells them. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Ammonites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So what she tells us, all of Jericho is trembling, right? Because all of Jericho has a knowledge. They know, man, the God of this country, he's pretty powerful. They're probably going to come kill us. But do they, do they then hold up the white flag? No. So mere knowledge is not enough to believe in God. But how do we know Rahab actually believes in this God? How do we know Rahab is not just like everyone else? Okay, we know that these people are scary. How do we know she's actually believing that this God is different than every other God? This God is worthy of all worship. How do we know? Because of what we read in verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. When we look at her works, her works are pointing to her face saying she believes. What she says, she actually does believe because it's played out in a life of obedience and works. This is what James wants us to know. And so let me just, let me just summarize this in just three statements. Number one, we're saved by faith alone. We hit that every week. We are saved by faith alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross. If you are here and you've not believed on Jesus, I want to make sure you hear there's nothing you need to do other than believe in the truth of what God's word says about him. He is the son of God who came and died so that we could have life. 
And by believing that, you're adopted, you're forgiven, and you're given citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God. It's all, all you need to know. You believe in that. Not just up here, but in a true, joyful conviction that then moves us to point number two. The faith that saves us does not stay alone. This is, this is, this is James's point. Real faith in the king of glory is evidenced by works that honor and glorify the king. If anyone says that they can be a Christian and yet not have works, they're foolish. To have mere intellectual assent is no different than the demons. They know a lot of things about God and they're not saved at all. A faith that is dead. Look at verse 26. Well, it explains it. Just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works. Just as the body apart from the spirit, there's nothing there. Faith apart from works. Again, he's not looking at how we get saved. He's looking at the evidence of our salvation. But I want us to think just a moment here. Why is it Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac? Are we reading into Genesis 22? Are we saying it's by faith? Are we putting something there that's not actually there? How do we know he offered it out of faith? Because the Bible tells us. Hebrews 11. Let me read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his, up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The Bible tells us the reason Abraham did this, he was so convinced in the God that he knew that God had all the power, all the might, that if he sacrificed his son, God is faithful to his promises that he would literally raise this child right back to life because the promises have to come through this child. So this was not just an act of uh, a, a whimful act that Abraham is doing. Well, let's just see what happens. No, he knows who this God is. He has walked in obedience to this God. And he says, everything that God has told me comes through this child. Therefore, if he dies, he has to bring him back. That's the faith that Jesus or that Abraham had. And in fact, if you look at Rahab, think about her faith. She gave up her livelihood. She gave up her home. She gave up her possessions. Everything she had, she gave up. She gave up her citizenship, her family. Why? Because she knows that this is the true God. And so she abandons everything in order to believe in this God because of what she has heard, because of the testimony that has gone forth. Hear this. This is what happens as we read this word. As we come into this word week in and week out and day in and day out, this is the God we read about. A God who is compassionate. A God who is good. A God who is faithful. A God who is kind. A God who is patient. A God who is steadfast. A God, remember the word immutable that we used back in James chapter 1. A God who is mighty and sovereign. Who will keep all of his promises. This is the God we believe in. And when we begin to believe more and more in this God, then we display these acts of faith. We display the life that God has called us to live. So that when we read the commands of Scripture, they don't feel like a burden, but they feel like this is the road that God is bringing us down on how we live out our faith. 
This is why we read this word. This is why God has given us this word. That we would know him and thus live accordingly. Now I know, as we hear, I imagine that some of you are thinking, all right, that sounds good. Um, that Abraham and Rahab faith sounds good. But it feels a little out there. Like that's, that's some radical faith. But I want you to think, James is, is really calling them to do something very similar. Look, he's calling this poor church, and we'll get into that in James chapter 5 on how poor this church is. He's calling this poor church to give all that they have to other people to meet their needs. He's saying, look, I know you don't have anything, but give what you have to meet the needs of one another. He's calling them to radically depend upon God to provide for the very things that they need. So I know that you're here there's some of you here, and you're going, okay, but where do I start? How, how do I even begin to walk this path? I want to be faithful. I want to have works. Clearly, our faith produces works. So what does that look like? So it just brings us to the last thing I would say. Real faith obeys God's word. In James chapter 1, we read this. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, all that we've been in in James is just fleshing out what it means to do God's word. I encourage you, when we're in the Word of God, there should be questions that we ask ourselves. Questions like, what does this text reveal about God? What does this text reveal about me and my need for the grace of Jesus? What does this text tell me about sin and the humanity in this world? But a good question also is, what is this text calling me to do? How is this text leading me into obedience? And one thing I, I would say is, what we see is that as we obey God's word, we're exercising our faith. And the more that we exercise our faith, the more that we obey God's word, the more that we will be able to continue to obey God's word as we go forward in all the situations that God brings in our life. So you're right. Abraham didn't start with sacrificing his son in Genesis 15, did he? But God grew him in his knowledge in his love and devotion to God, so that when God brought that upon him, he was able to live out accordingly. And so I, whatever it is God's calling us to do, some of us might go, well, I could never do this, I could never do that. Yes, you can on that day. On that day that God asks you to obey whatever it is, God will give you the grace to do that. And you know how? Because right now, each day, through his word, he's calling you obey. Obey my word, grow in your faith, grow in your faith each day, so that when that day comes, you'll be able to obey also as God calls you to obey. Does that make sense? Don't think he's asking you to abandon, to, to offer the son on day one. He grows us in our faith, so that on that day, through acts of obedience, we'll be prepared for that day, whenever that comes. So what I want to do is I want to pray um, and and uh, we'll, we're going to take communion as we celebrate how God has given to us, how God didn't just say, I love you, but then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the demonstration of that love. Do you see what's happening at communion? We're celebrating the very actions of God that he verbally declared to us, which is also a sign for us that as we verbally profess our faith in God, we go forth that we would live 
out our love in God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you. And Lord, we see that your word calls us to believe in you and that by faith alone we are saved. But Lord, we see that it is through our life of works that on that final day that we will be declared publicly righteous and justified. And Lord, may we, may we know that day is coming. May we look joyful to that day because we know that we are growing in our love and obedience to you today and every day. May we not fear that day, but may we look forward to the return of your son Jesus that we would be brought into that perfect relationship with you, that we would live with you forever, never to be separated as you bring about the new heavens and new earth. Father, we praise you for salvation. We praise you that you did not just say you love us, but as you declare it, you demonstrate it through, this, through your son, Jesus Christ. May we all know that the faith that we publicly profess must be publicly demonstrated in every day that we live. In your name, Jesus, amen. I'd like to go ahead and invite men to come forward now and help pass out the elements.